I want to thank our sponsors, Athletic Greens, who created AG1, one of the most innovative packets of supplements, including 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. These ingredients support your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. I personally started using Athletic Greens and love the way I feel in the morning after I drink it. And I no longer have energy crashes throughout the day. And the best part is that it's delicious. The founder of Athletic Greens created AG1 because he experienced a ton of gut health and ended up on a complicated and expensive supplement routine to recover. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash yasmine. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash yasmine, Y-A-S-M-E-E-N, to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Hi, my name is Yasmin Tarehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. On today's episode, I'll be speaking with Carissa Luminaire, who has more than 40 years experience as a counselor, consultant, and educator to individuals, couples, and families. In her private counseling practice, she integrates her lifelong research on how our early bonding patterns impact our self-identity and adult relationship dynamics. And her powerful, life-changing programs bring in participants into direct experience and embodiment of their true self. She has developed a comprehensive holistic parenting methodology, a leading edge evolutionary leadership program, and a practical approach for couples to rewire insecure bonding into a secure functioning relationship. And she's also been certified in both the Gottman Method and Stan Tatklin's Pact Institute. And as president of the Luminary Leadership Institute, she coaches leaders how to be pro-relationer. I found out about her um, actually through another podcast and actually took her course and just thought I had to have her on the show. She's incredible, has such a wealth of knowledge in this space. All right. So welcome. Welcome to the show, Carista. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you. It's a joy to be here. So to kick it off, I'd love to understand why so many people are confused about love. Well, most people learn their experience of love through their primary attachment figures. And that means whether the attachment figure is present or not. Some people have negligent uh, attachment figures, usually, you know, one or both parents, or they may have multiple parents, step parents, maybe come through their first experience through adoption. And so that early bond really defines our first experience of what love is and what love isn't. So most, if I ask people what their definition of love is, they usually draw a blank or they'll come up with a few virtues or qualities. And so I've really tried to help people understand how their early attachment style affects their adult intimacy dynamics and to clarify their own particular experience of love, how to define it. For example, most people don't realize a way to describe love is that it feels warm 
rather than cold, that it feels peaceful, rather than warlike, that it feels protective, rather than defensive. So these very simple distinctions, when I ask people really what their experience of love is, often they can clarify if they really have a deep understanding and direct experience of it or not, whether it feels safe or dangerous, secure or insecure, that kind of distinction. And it's surprising how many, how few people really can, can clarify their sense of what love is and isn't. And when do people usually reach out to you in their kind of relationship uh, evolutionary cycle? I mean, is there kind of an age group or a gender that reaches out? And, you know, I sort of just think about like, you know, the, our, my parents' generation where it didn't feel like there was a lot of understanding about regulating the emotional world and, and what that means. So I'm just curious, you know, do you have like kind of a... I have the whole spectrum. The whole, okay. <laughs> I work with teens... I work with tweens, I work with those who are in their, you know, later adult years and everything in between. My favorite group to work with are younger people in that I wish I had understood what love is and what love isn't. I would have been a lot more discerning to know when I was in an unsafe or insecure situation that this was where I tolerated a lot of the experiences because that's what I grew up in and it was familiar, like family. And so now that I understand what love is, I probably would have along the way chosen different partners or not endured a lot of codependency or narcissistic behavior because in my family that was very normal and was the role I played. Mm. So uh, let's talk about the four attachment styles because I think that will kind of set the tone for the conversations on codependency and narcissism. Um, what are the four attachment styles? Yes. Yeah, so this is another distinction that wasn't out in the day when I was younger. I'm now 66. And um, it's based on the early work of John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth in the 1950s, the attachment approach has now become quite mainstream. It was esoteric back then in my dissertation. I used a lot of it back in the day. And so I call it the love, the four love styles. It's just more relatable rather than attachment <laughs> style. But if you hear me use each term, they're synonymous. So the four attachment styles are secure attachment, insecure, anxious attachment, insecure, avoidant attachment, and traumatic attachment. Would you like me to go into some of the distinctions and differences? Yes, please. And and also if if it's possible that people can have more than one. Oh, yeah. Well, they usually dominate one, but I'll answer that afterwards. Ask okay. me that again. So um, the secure attachment style means that minimal, 80% of the time, four to five interactions, one feels in relationship to the other person, safe, loved. I'm a priority for you. Those are the general experiences. They feel loved and trust and honored. And this sense of we create security for each other, the relationship's a priority. We're available to soothe each other's distress. We empower each other's true self. It's like you're my go-to person. Now, 80% of the time is minimal. That means, yeah, the other 20%, are we, you know, threatening each other and scaring each other? No. What we're doing is we're having our moods. We're having our, you know, our, our own focuses off the relationship. But the general trend is I'm committed to creating safety and security for you. And when you report your behavior is threatening, that matters to me. Even if I didn't mean it, even if it's your childhood wounding, your sense of security is a top priority for me. Mm. The next three styles are primarily what happens when we're 
triggered or co-triggered. We go into fight or flight. There's a whole understanding of this in the brain, the brain uh, science I can talk about if you want. But in general, we go into insecure, anxious, we, which is those that feel insecure, anxious, have a general feeling of feeling abandoned. This feeling of when I get triggered, I feel you don't care about me. You don't want connection with me. And the, the insecure, anxious needs this deep connection, knows they need it, but does not know how to get it. And they're usually feeling, I'm not important to you. I don't know if I matter to you. And there's a preoccupation. It's often called preoccupied, insecure, anxious. And their general tendency is to attack, to provoke, to complain, to criticize. So the anxiety is, the connection's gone. I feel anxious about it. I've got to do something about it right away. Usually the criticizers and the ones who escalate. Often women, not always. Their general feelings are fear of abandonment. I feel anxious when they don't have the connection. And until it gets resolved, anxiety dominates. The second insecure attachment style is insecure avoidant. That means when I get triggered, see you later. Just like the word the word <laughs> says, I withdraw, I ignore, I hide out. I, the avoidant, will shut down. Usually more logical, usually avoids conflict. And the, underneath it is the fear of rejection. There's a feeling of hopelessness, usually uh, cold, numb, and stuck. And the feeling is, I, um, I don't need anyone. Just you know, I'm not good enough. I will just self-regulate because being in connection is too threatening, too overwhelming. I get flooded easily, and I'm avoiding other person, insecure avoidant. And the third insecure style is called insecure traumatic. Some people call it uh, disorganized. It's usually a traumatic reaction when one gets triggered that's disproportionate to what's really happening because one's really in some PT, PTS memory of something earlier that overwhelmed the psyche. And the general, it's, the general feeling is, I don't feel safe with you. Most of the time you feel scary. I need to protect myself from you. I need to hide from you. I, I can't control anything. You other person feel dangerous, usually coming from childhood conditioning, where one of the parents were very punishing, addiction, abuse, where there was total unpredictability. And the child felt threatened and desperate most of the time, terrified. So this feeling is when I get triggered, you other person, you my adult attachment figure, which our partners become, leave me feeling um, really afraid of you most of the time. And I have a tendency, my behavior is to explode with emotion, overreact, uh, sometimes be highly, highly illogical, or that's more the insecure anxious or the insecure avoidant version would be more paralyzed, collapsed or frozen when I get triggered. So usually the insecure traumatic, this third one, is on top of one of the other two insecure styles. So you're insecure anxious with traumatic in addition. You're insecure avoidant with traumatic in addition, meaning when you get triggered, your version, your behaviors are highly inflamed in the particular attachment style, like the insecure anxious, you're highly exploding with emotion, the insecure avoidant, you're going to the paralyzed collapse, deep, deep freeze, illogical reaction. Mm, Wow. Oh, that's so fascinating. And like, what sort of behaviors in childhood create these kind of polarities in people? What kind of behaviors in childhood regarding... Like with like the relationship with their primary uh, caregivers, like how do people become anxious? How do people Mm. become avoidant? Usually one or both or more attachment figures, if they have grandparents or they have other attachment figures, step parents, one of those parents, how the child bonds with them 
actually sets the blueprint. So if the parent is, the child cries out for distress or wants to be soothed and the parent cares for them, makes their distress a priority and says, I got you, honey, you know, I'm here, you're safe with me. That will create more of a secure attachment probability. If the parent, one or both, will ignore the child, sometimes be there, sometimes not be there, that often creates the insecure anxious. In other words, the parent's unpredictable. I call it ambivalent or unpredictable love. You're there, but when you're there, you are unpredictably disappear when I really need you. And even when you're there, I can't, I, the child can't stay at peace. I feel anxious that you could be leaving at any moment. And that plays out with partners who act that way. And the insecure avoidant is very similar to when the child cries out for help, distress, being, being reassured, the parent avoids them, lets them cry it out. And the child goes, forget it. When I need help, when I have needs, no one's there. I'm not even going to bother to need other person. I'm going to become independent and just take care of myself because depending on someone hurts so much, the rejection, the avoidance of me hurts so much that I basically am going to let go of even needing that in my life. And that's why when they meet partners and they start getting a relationship, when that partner overwhelms them, they actually don't have the skill set to know that what their needs are to lean on someone, to depend on someone, to actually hold someone else is what love actually does. They don't know what secure attachment is. It's, it's a lack of understanding that being interdependent and being held and cared for and seen by someone is actually what love is because they were ignored. Mm, wow. And fascinating. That's so fascinating. And what about like parents who are like controlling or you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm super curious. I'm kind of like leading into the question, like how do people develop narcissistic relationships or how do they become narcissistic? Like, how does that, maybe you can give an example of like, what does it, what does it show up if your parent is a narcissist or if you are a narcissist? Like, how does that, how does that happen? Well, narcissism is basically describes people who are focused primarily on themselves. And it's usually more the avoidant types in general. And they have a tendency to seek attention and approval and admiration from the outside because they feel insecure on the inside. But their 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 compensation is they feel superior to people and they don't care about other people's feelings. They usually get what they want, often not caring about impact on other and their relationship presence is often when triggered, they get very self-absorbed. That's another synonym for narcissism. And any trait, whether it's narcissism, codependency, depression, anxiety, even a personality disorder, is on a spectrum. So you could have mild spectrum narcissism, moderate spectrum behaviors, severe or even narcissistic personality disorder, which is very entrenched sense of self-absorption. In other words, usually they're non-relational. They're not pro-relational because I, the self, is more important than other they usually lack empathy in the more moderate to severe end of the spectrum. That's one way to really know because they don't really care about the other. And it usually comes from their own wiring, their own conditioning, and their primary attachment figures that that was role modeled to them, one or both or more attachment figures, when they needed them, when it was like, I need you to care, I child need you to care for me, parent. The parent disregards the child's needs has no empathy and the child learns 
that this is how one relates. This actually is what breeds codependence often in children, is that the only way I can exist in this relationship is if I care for the parents' needs, because that's when I get love. But if I need to focus on me, it's my turn. It's what I call what about me for the codependent. The attachment figure or the partner later in life will often, if they're narcissistic, won't really read those cues, won't respond to the other person, the, the other person's needs. And that's usually what I, what I call and is often called narcissistic wounding. In other words, parents wounded us in terms of our understanding how to, what to expect from another, that our needs are equally as important, our sensitivities are equally as important. If the parent didn't respond to our needs, we often don't know that. So we can either become like them, which will mean that we're repeating the the, the, the behavior of being self-absorbed with our later life apart, um, partners and children, or we'll do the opposite because we played a role of doing the opposite in order to keep the connection with the narcissistic parent. And that is often what, what creates codependent behavior. Wow. And uh, can we also talk about, I think it's, you called it covert uh, narcissism versus like, what's the sort of difference between these two? Right. You and I were talking a little bit beforehand and there's a garbage truck coming <laughs> up my street. You hear a little noise. It'll go quickly. Um, so um, covert narcissism, I'm talking kind of mainstream, not clinical. This is more for the mainstream. Covert narcissism is in general, when someone shows these kind of lack these self-absorbed tendencies, let's just say the lack of empathy, particularly when they cause threatening behavior and you go, ouch, you're hurting me or, ah, you know, I need your attention and it's disregarded. Um, The covert narcissist usually is not, is more the passive aggressive, you know, it's more um, not, not overt. There's a sense of disregard for the other, but it's more through avoiding kind of um, disregarding either verbally or non-verbally without it being really in your face. And um, it often people talk about in the narcissistic spectrum, how some narcissists can appear very charming. That's one of the ways they actually relate. They get people to pay attention to them. And then when the other person goes, hey, what about me? Or, hey, you're hurting me, or challenges the narcissist behavior, the narcissist will and then show their true colors, and the charm will turn into aggression or dismissiveness. And so some people will consider that kind of charming allure to be part of the covert. Like you can't see it. It's under the it's 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 hidden. And the dismissiveness may be more subtle rather than overt, you know, aggression or disregard. What what's an example of dismissiveness? I really want to dig into this because I think you know, I anecdotally, I've just heard and seen so many people who are experiencing relationships with narcissists. And it's just, um, you know, it's jarring because you sort of start to lose your mind. <laughs> yeah, it can right. make you batty, um, depending on what is, you know, this new theme of gaslighting is often the dismissive behavior where the let's say partner A is more codependent and partner B and more, in other words, more self-sacrificing. I give up my needs to keep the connection because I can't afford to assert my needs. I, the codependent, I will get the, I will get rejected by the more self-absorbed, the more narcissistic spectrum partner. So the, let's say partner A, who's a little more timid and asserting themselves, takes a risk to say, I'm hurt by you. 
or I need you to do something, you know, I need you to pay attention to me. And partner B, who may have more narcissistic behavior, more self-absorbed, non-relational behavior will be dismissive. It's like, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, I, I, I see you every day. I eat dinner with you. And the partner who's complaining might say, you do, but you don't really, you know, you, you're on your iPhone all the time and you don't really pay attention to me. And then the partner B, the one who's more self-absorbed goes, what do you mean today? You know, I, I put my phone down and we talked about the trip we were taking and partner and the other partner goes, yeah, but you were, you were kind of nasty and you know you didn't really care for my feelings and needs you made it all about your own and then the narcissist will some somewhere find some way to negate those needs and those mm. that commentary for connection and lack empathy about their kind of their cold more intellectual intolerant style of communicating and kind of pick apart what's really happening without really caring that the other partner is going to distress and needing more care the the gaslighting element of it is often that term's being used quite a bit. It's usually when either partner, for that matter, anyone, parent, child, is accusing the person of a behavior, but they're doing it themselves, or they're being told their behavior is really showing up in a way that's challenging or threatening, and they even though they they're it's happening. They're denying it's happening and making it about the other person. Wow. It's a disregard for what's for owning, for really owning their behavior that can feel impactful or hurtful. And that's more the narcissist behaviors. So the like lack of taking responsibility is like a narcissistic kind of quality in general. Yeah. Like the, yeah. Lack of owning, lack of caring, lack of wanting to repair are three distinctions that um, I put out. And often, and the narcissist has a bad rap because we have a lot of you know, geopolitical figures, whatever side of the spectrum you're on, <laughs> um, you know, as well as parents or people that have really hurt us who, you know, appear to be kind of aggressive and not care about their impact. That's really what defines it. Um, and to, I always remember, I work with a lot of people who have narcissistic spectrum, that it's ignorance, it's their conditioning. They don't know what love is. They don't know what connection is. They don't know that you're supposed to care for the other person because that was their survival strategy. That was their adaptive strategy. But there is a spectrum more in the severe to personality disorder that can be very destructive and very toxic. And in that case, don't expect that you could change that person. Because, you know, if you're feeling threatened most of the time, you're feeling uncared for no matter what you say and do, and you shapeshift yourself and you're being diminished and feeling bad about yourself as a dominant feeling, you're in, you know, insecure attachment and often insecure trauma bonding. And look to your own self to decide, you know, if you were, if you were imprinted that way and you don't know how to navigate that kind of personality, then it can be very, very self-destructive to stay in a relationship like that. But for someone who's self-absorbed through their conditioning and wants to learn to be pro-relational, I work with those people all day long, and they're just lacking wisdom, what love is and it isn't, and they want to care about their impact, and they want to learn how to be loving, then that's healable if they want to do the inner work with the right path yeah. and person. How long does it take to usually become aware um you know, when you have these traits and then also like to do the work to become more pro-relational. I mean, and I just like go back to some of the things you said, like lack, lack of not wanting to repair the relationship, like just kind of the disassociative aspect of it just seems pretty 
intense. It's spectrum. I mean, what brings a, you know, where, where a person's behavior is in the spectrum, how deep the wounding is, uh, how much inner work they've done so far in their relationship to their own attachment figures, even the attachment figures that abandon them uh, or, or through death or single parenting. Um, so it's always custom designed to the individual and or the couple who come to me how long it will take. And then I can give all kinds of practices, but I can't control whether they, you know, they engage them within themselves or between each other. Some people are, some people that come to me and usually at a crisis in a couple, usually what brings the narcissists more, when with more narcissistic spectrum in is they've been threatened to have a relationship end because the person was so desperate and they actually are positively attached to that person and they've just never learned how to be loving and they want to learn and they're about to lose that person. That will crack open kind of the unconscious, subconscious adaptive strategy of self-absorption. I've got a number, usually men and some women who really um, are like, oh my God, I don't want to lose her or him. I had no idea. Now I see how selfish I was, you know, help me understand how to be more loving. And they're the ones that are usually quicker to guide. Um, but depending on their wounding and their you know, emotional intelligence and their general intelligence and how they respond to me and the, and the guidance that I offer them, how often they work with me and or other specialists determines how fast it is. I've had people that I was sure would be three to five years because many of my colleagues who really specialize in more of the clinical personality disorder, which isn't my specialty, I'm more like the mild to moderate spectrum. They say it's a lifelong dismantling and, and often, you know, you can have highly functional narcissistic personality disorders, very complicated to really dismantle those defense strategies. Um, I have found some that I thought would take a long time be so swift because they just, they want to learn and they have innate intelligence and others I thought, you know, they've done a lot of work themselves and they just kind of need a major tune up. Um, Sometimes their partner won't change with them or they just, it's more complicated than I thought, or they thought it's connected to a whole bunch of trauma, developmental trauma that has to be attended to over time. And they may work not regularly and, you know, they may stop midway before they're finished or it feels too threatening to change and never really get to it. Mm, fascinating. Fascinating. Wow. Uh, how can you kind of be aware like early on, like the signs of, of narcissism or, you know, this kind of behavior in, in a relationship when you're starting to date someone? Oh, I get asked that question a lot. <laughs> it actually makes my heart skip a beat because um, there's so many people that are blind to what they're, um, you know, with who they're bonding with. That includes those who are codependent, which I, I would love to also talk about. Yes, are, yes. Are not so easy themselves being a recovering codependent myself. <laughs> um the, one of the key themes to look for that makes a very complicated dynamic simple to assess, at least sitting in my side of the of the screen, so to speak, is um, as a you know as a counselor is to really look for when one says your behavior is threatening for whatever reason, tone of voice, content of how you express yourself, avoiding me, you know, aggressive. Um, not paying enough attention, whatever the, the the grievance is, that the person who they're sharing their concerns and their feelings with disregards that dismissiveness and makes it all about the person who's needing to be cared for. You're too sensitive. You're too needy. 
And in other words, there's lack of empathy. I don't care that I'm impacting this way. And I will make it all about you and your problem. And I'm not going to change. I have nothing to look at. When I trigger you, I have nothing to own or repair. That's when I say, don't keep investing. Unless that person, you say, your behavior doesn't feel loving. I don't feel safe and secure with you. I need to get some counseling with you. And if the person says, I'm not interested in counseling, I'm not going to change, you know, and there's, again, a, a denial of their lack of being able to care, then I say, don't invest. Get out where you can. And is that also true for the covert narcissism? Well, that one is, it's it's more hidden. And because uh, that person can have behavior that's charming or they are somewhat healthy. They have some tendency to know how to connect or they can be manipulative and appear to be loving and caring until they get their catch, so to speak. Um, so, yeah, I mean, what you're looking for is whether the person has the capacity to care. And we all go out of care when we get triggered. It's just how do we then navigate back to each other is often where I can really diagnose whether this is a viable relationship in terms of it being secure attachment or healable. So how quickly each part, each, each partner owns that they've hurt the other, cares that they've hurt the other, whether they meant to or not, and how quickly they're willing to repair that breach, that rupture, which many people just lack the skill set to know how to do that. But if there's a sense of, you know, the cold, it's like, I don't care you're hurting. You're crying, you know, you're, you're, what are you crying for? You know, um, I'm, and the person says, I feel insecure with you. It's like, that's your problem. You know, it has nothing to do with me. So that level of denial is when, whether it's overt or covert, when you're feeling that is the dominant feeling. And when you complain or grieve about it or speak about it, there's just no signal that person's going to care. That's whether it's overt or covert. Be aware. Interesting. And then also like holding a grudge. Does that also holding grudges? Yeah. I mean, again, having been on, you know, both as the person who has been in more in the codependent spectrum, often attracting narcissists in my earlier years in particular who didn't care. Um, you know, I everyone is everyone can go into a grudge. In other words, we get triggered or co-triggered, meaning both are triggered and kind of shut down and get hurt and don't know how to find our way back. If that's the normal go-to and we, we hold grudges for more than a, f- you know, a few hours and they go in for days, that is not tenable. I mean, who wants, who can feel well when they're being rejected or abandoned like that? But what I've found is that most people don't know how to repair quickly. And so secure attachment couples, they fight. They just know how to fight well. So they know that when they're triggered, that they need to really care about their impact on each other and try to repair it, usually within five minutes to an hour, unless it's really, you know, really there's a lot of pain. But when we're hijacked in our triggers, particularly if it if it's connected to a lot of what I call scar tissue, a lot of traumatic experiences that are the same, either that person or in our childhood or other partners, Sometimes it takes a while to kind of quiet the brain. We usually go into fight or flight when we're triggered. Fight is more the insecure, anxious. We're fighters. It's like, you're abandoning me. I need to resolve this. I will fight until I get your attention. Flight is more, I'm threatened by your behavior. That's more the avoidant, self-absorbed. Bye, I'm out of here. I withdraw. 
And so, you know, the grudges are usually a result of not knowing how to come back to feel that each partner feels safe to be able to open their hearts and minds. I mean, that's basically a grudge is a closed heart and mind to really being able to feel connected to the other. Mm, fascinating. Wow. Uh, so, uh, Carissa, I want to talk about codependency since I know that was the topic that we sure. were going to focus on. Um, but you're so fascinating. I'm just like, wow, eating this all up. It's it's just uh, really mind-blowing. Um, so, yeah, so codependency. So um, we spoke about this kind of before the conversation that um, you mentioned you were, you have healed your codependency and you're kind of recovering codependent. And I will say I sort of gravitate towards that um, polarity or I have gravitated towards that polarity in the past, um, especially, you know, if someone's very ang- uh, avoidant. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So can we talk a little bit about like how does codependency form? Um, how can we heal codependency? You know, what is it? Uh, we can just start there. Yes. Um, well, I have a saying that is through my observation as a couples counselor for over forty years and having been in a relationship serial monogamous for many years. Um, that in general, everything I'm saying is a generalization. Most codependents are drawn to narcissists. It's what I call plug and play. Why is that? Well, if the narcissist is the one that's self-absorbed, the one who's focused primarily on themselves, the codependent is used to describe people who are focused on caring for others where they tend to abandon themselves. So, and this is more the anxious types in general. So why would they be naturally drawn to each other? Because the narcissistic spectrum person thinks more of themselves and doesn't really want to care for the other person. Whereas the codependent, the one who abandons themselves, have found their role in the family system with the primary attachment figures, usually by by no one cared for my needs or the primary attachment figure didn't care for my needs. So I learned to be the caretaker in the relationship and get my value and get my sense of love by caring for others and not having needs myself, abandoning my needs. Because in a sense, the attachment figure abandoned caring for my needs. I'm not talking about clothing necessarily. I mean, that can happen in some situations or, you know, food. We're talking about emotional needs, the need to be loved, to feel safe, to feel protected, to feel secure, to feel nurtured. Those are all qualities of what love does and is to feel that sense of being embraced. And I didn't get that. So I will then give that to the other, to the parent. They want to be put on a pedestal. They want to have me take care of them or the, you know, whatever the attachment figure is. So then I I choose partners where I play that role because that's what I learned love is. That can be healed. Yeah. So tell me about the process of of the journey of healing. and, And perhaps you can even talk about your own journey. Sure. Um, I'm just stopping for a minute because it's it's. There's so many ways to answer that question. You know, I'm like, <laughs> which direction do I go? Um, in terms of talking about myself, I'm very open about my process. Um, the process of healing again depends on where each person is on the spectrum of any behavior trait, narcissism, codependency, and everything else. So, if you have more mild traits, in other words, you have a defense system or a adaptive strategy that, you know, sometimes when I'm triggered. I learned to avoid conflict because it was too, I, the codependent, learned to avoid conflict because it was too dangerous, threatening to be vulnerable. Hey, attachment figure, you scare me or I, I, I need to challenge what you're saying. But I, the codependent, won't say anything because 
I'm afraid you'll abandon me emotionally or physically or make me feel wrong. So I will just shapeshift myself to meet your version of how you want to be loved, self-absorbed person, and put myself aside. I'll abandon myself. And that really is what is going on. So you may sometimes do that and other times speak up and really endure the conflict. You may, um, so you may be a blend, but the more moderate to severe codependent will basically really put their own needs aside. They've been told they're too sensitive, they're too needy. And so one has to be willing to find their voice. That's, you know, a lot of the kind of metaphor that people use, the codependent has to be able to speak up and say, I have needs too. My needs are equally as important as yours. I'm not going to abandon when you, when you overwhelm me. I'm not going to abandon speaking about it. I'm not going to, you know, suppress my feelings and needs anymore. I'm going to find my voice and speak up. Now that's not going to happen if the attachment figure, whether it's in childhood or our partners, our romantic partners become our attachment figures. We work out all our attachment issues as soon as we cross over sexually. All of our attachment needs that person. We want them to love them in ways we never got to be loved or we're used to being loved. So if we're in conflict and we suppress our needs, we abandon ourselves, same thing. We suppress our feelings. We abandon ourselves, same thing. Then every incident we do that, every incident that we, the codependent, are suppressing our needs and feelings, particularly if we're aware of them, some people aren't even aware of them because they never got to develop that, that skill set. And we don't say something. And it's really the consequence of not saying something can really affect our well-being, the suppression of the truth. Then we are abandoning ourselves and deepening our codependent tendency. But if we take a risk and we speak up, even if it means we're going to create conflict with that person, then we're rewiring that tendency to abandon ourselves. And it's incident by incident. This time, am I going to take the risk with this person? Is it important enough that even if we're in conflict and we have to fight it out, I'm going to put myself on the dance floor and make sure my need is cared for? And so the recovering part of the codependency or narcissism is every time we're in the old behavior of being self-absorbed or self, which is the narcissist, self-sacrificing the codependent, we're going to take that opportunity to do the opposite. The narcissist is going to learn to be more caring in their response, and the codependent is going to, going to use that opportunity to mindfully and carefully express what they're needing and feeling. And that's where the codependent is confused. That's where often the codependent will suddenly go, I'm going to have a voice. I'm coming out of the closet. It's kind of like a genie that's been corked up, that all those emotional needs and the cork pops. It's like, gosh, darn it. I'm not going to be codependent anymore and abandon myself. I'm going to have a voice. So every time I feel like I'm suppressing myself and the person's not caring for me, I'm going to care for myself and put myself out there. And often in those earlier phases, because they never got to practice it in their developmental years, they can appear as a very petulant, toddler, you know, who finally is the terrible twos they never had. I'm going to exist. You know, that's the two-year-old. And the teenager who rebels against the controlling parent, I'm going to have my autonomous feelings and needs <laughs> and speak up. If they didn't have that individuation, then they're starting to have it with their primary attachment adult figure. And it can be very messy and they can come out really sloppy. And depending on if that other partner is is also codependent by nature or more narcissistic or is an, a, a secure attachment person who can endure and be compassionate towards this growth spurt, then it determines how long the process is. And if they're doing it 
you know, with a primary attachment finger or they're doing it in their life with their colleagues or their children and how receptive the other person is to care for their needs will determine, you know, whether they get the reward that speaking up is a good thing. So that's generically, I could talk about myself if you want, you can draw a question. Oh, yes. Draw yeah. That on me. yeah. Actually, I'd love to uh, ground this in your own experience um, sure. and, and how you were able to heal your own codependency and just, yeah. Yes, I call myself a recovering, and I would say now at the age I'm at, a well-recovered codependent. And I also would say after 40 plus years working on this thing very mindfully and being highly functioning in my relationships all along, it usually worked, played out with my, it didn't play out my mothering, it played out with my primary attachment figures along the way. Um, cause I had a narcissistic father who was also very loving and narcissistic mother, not personality disorder, also very loving. But I played that role of caretaker healers often are that way because they, they, they get a value after, uh, out of caring. Um, and they learn to be very attuned to other people's needs. So I found for myself that I had to literally practice every time I understood what was going on. And, um, it wasn't until my present partner, Lion, who I created this course, Healing Narcissism and Codependency.com, the one you took online. When we came together later in life and um, I told him that I was in relationships where I had this tendency to be codependent and anxious when it got triggered. And we discovered very quickly that when he got triggered, he was more the avoidant, more self-absorbed, not personality disorder, mild to moderate when he was really, really, really charged. Um, he said to me, you know, I, I knew he was a very loving being because I knew him as a friend and a colleague and he's a great community, uh, leader. And yet with his primary attachment figures, some of this narcissistic behavior would come out. And I realized it was really because he really lacked understanding how to rewire himself and how to be pro-relational that his mother wound was very deep and he would get triggered and projected on me sometimes. But he said to me in the beginning, you know, I want to learn to be more pro-relational. I want to learn how to be caring when I go out of care. And I know it's a defense mechanism. And he proved very early on that when he would get in that more self-absorbed behavior, usually going into withholding, not, you know, being able to tolerate when we get in conflict, going to, to his office and he'd go all day. He, he didn't, the avoidance, like whatever, I'm in conflict too much. I'm going to go self-regulate and do my own thing. And that was normal for him. And I go, wait a minute, you're abandoning me. That's too long. And he would show me that when he'd care, he'd come back to care. When he'd go out of care, he'd come back to care very quickly. Or he'd go and get work on himself, men's work. He's in, a big leader of men's work and working with different counselors or open to me so that I saw him rewiring incident by incident. And there were so many other wonderful attributes when he wasn't triggered, including his capacity to love, that I was willing to walk him through it. And and simultaneously, same with me, I would have to look at where I would go into coing mild to moderate behavior of avoiding conflict because sometimes he would remind me when he when he'd of my parents or of that pain and so we rewired each other incident by incident he's very very vocal um everything i'm saying about him we've talked about a lot we're in a lot of teleseminars together as well as our own where he talks about being a recovering narcissist and again not narcissistic personality disorder he has a whole whole book called the narcissist primer that um he also wrote for men in general there's some women who are, who vector that way but we're we're more caretakers just with estrogenic brains we have a tendency more to be caretakers so it's usually men 
because they weren't taught to be pro-relational, to be sensitive. No one really cared for their feelings, right? They would cry, be like, don't cry, you're too sensitive, you know, it's not masculine, particularly in the older generation that I'm in. So really the recovery is whether you're a narcissistic spectrum or codependent, insecure uh, attachment responses that aren't, you can't really lace to either of these distinctions. Every time you trigger is the opportunity to, to either practice behavior that's more pro-relational. In other words, we're all go for being more understanding, reducing threat, being more predictable and safe and secure, more caring in positive ways, more connecting positive ways, or our behavior goes into insecure reactions where we're unpredictable, we're in more, more warlike behavior, defensive, judging, critical. That's what I mean by that. We re- reject and abandon each other. We ignore each other. We diminish. We suppress. And then we get to decide if we're going to repair that and how quickly we are. So it's not a perfect state when you're recovered. It's an ongoing. So just the last thing I'll say is that absolutely there are times when I find vestiges of suppressing my feelings to avoid conflict feeling anxiety, not just with him, it could be with other people, colleagues, um, rarely with friends. I don't attract friends like that, but, you know, and I'm self-employed, so it's very (laughs) rare. But every once in a while, I'll get someone that I'm, you know, even a whatever, I'll get someone that is just, they're insensitive to my sensitivities, let's put it that way, and I'm very sensitive. So, you know, I have to practice. Am I going to speak up? And if I may just add, knowing I've talked a lot here, sometimes codependence or people in general it's okay to avoid conflict sometimes it's not safe to share your truth or your feelings or needs with the other person because the other person is incapable out of their conditioning they are not pro-relational they are non-relational whether whoever it is personal professional relationship and it's wise to actually not share because they're just going to reject your vulnerability they're going to be indifferent to your exposure of your underbelly or your heart is going to be denied or diminished. So don't speak up, know your own truth. That's different. That's different to be, to say, I am not speaking up because I know what's going on and the conditions aren't safe. That's not codependency. That's wise discernment. Right. And then in that case, that person should just leave. Right. Well, um, if I play off your question, leave, the moment, <laughs> leave the conversation, leave the relationship. Those are all different distinctions. I think maybe like we can talk about all three because, you know, if you don't feel comfortable to share, then what, like how, how do you move forward? Um, I'm stopping because again, I can answer that in many ways. If you, okay. So good question. Um, if you don't feel, okay. If you don't feel comfortable to share, then you want to look inside and say, is it just because I'm in my old habit of not speaking up and I have to take a risk here because this person is not scary, you know, they're somewhat open. And I know if I speak up, there's a chance I could really get some care and resolution here, or I could care for them. It's worth the risk. And it's uncomfortable because I have a tendency to be quiet and go into, you know, self-suppression. So that discomfort is the one where I'm saying, a re, you know, that's a chance to rewire. If you're uncomfortable because your beepers are saying, red alert, this person, you know, feels unsafe or threatening, then the choice is stay in the presence of that person and say nothing. 
or start small and gentle and test out and see if it's worth, you know, full exposure of what I'm feeling, or it's clearly not safe. And then I'm either going to walk out in this moment of the room, not go for the fight, you know, not share, or if this is my dominant experience, most of the time, I'm going to evaluate whether to stay in this relationship or how much of myself to expose in this relationship. So the discomfort can be acute in the moment and can actually be part of what the codependent needs to feel in order to motivate them to take a risk to stop just defaulting to being quiet because that's their habit. Mm, Amazing. Uh, So Carissa, I have so many more questions, but I know we are uh, coming at time. I'd love to know, like, what has surprised you the most on this journey? (laughs) Again, which which, which, uh, path do I go on here? Um, What surprised me the most is how quickly even people can heal, some people, um, who I think will take a while because they'll come very wounded with a lot of developmental trauma, a lot of confusion about what love is and isn't. They keep choosing partners that are really unhealthy. They get hurt a lot more than they feel safe and secure and loved. And I think this is going to be a long period of time, even though I've found very simple ways to really pattern interrupt a lot of complex dynamics. And so many people I know who have had a lifetime of trauma, developmental trauma, kind of defining their way of bonding, can really rewire very efficiently and consistently if they stay with their self-care and self-healing program, whether it's with me or other wonderful people out there offering guidelines how to do that. So one can heal a lot of attachment trauma from earlier years or earlier relationships if they get the right help. And the resiliency of the human heart and mind and the ability to actually teach people what love is, there are practical guidelines to do that, is really um, possible. Mm, amazing, amazing. And um, how has the pandemic sort of shifted uh, your audience or the work? I mean, has that brought out different things in people? Yes, the pandemic. I mean, you said that. It, interesting. I had a kind of a visceral reaction. I'm in a warm room in sunny California in the summer, and I actually got chills when you said that. So it really touched a part of me because I have experienced so much extra dynamics to navigate because what's happening particularly the first two years when people were having to you know stay inside and a lot and not have the freedom to find to be able to have co-regulation in other words have another person to regulate them whereas self-regulation is when we we regulate ourselves we can't depend on our partner to give us everything and if the partnership was already delicate and people you know were getting a lot of their care and attention from additional sources, which is an important option for everyone, even in secure attachment. Um, They started to depend on each other. They were having to be stuck in, you know, longer term interface without the skill set, how to deal with some of the triggers, including just the loss of work or the being sick or family members, you know, being compromised and not know how to hold each other through extra worries, extra triggers that were happening, as well as just a lot of people fearing geopolitical, you know, dynamics. Um, We even have that now, a new field called climate anxiety, uh, COVID anxiety, there's geopolitical anxiety. Things are very, very delicate 
for people's sense of safety and security. So if your partner can't offer you that and you're stuck with them and you're in conflict and you can't go out and get it elsewhere, even through nature or exercise, it really complicated a lot of the insecure bonding and the insecure issues. Mm, yeah, that's powerful, powerful. It's just, um, yeah, I think a lot of relationships shifted during the pandemic for sure. <laughs> yeah, well, some got closer. They learned how to love each other, you know, and they couldn't escape and and some um, really, you know, just blew things up and others survived because they learn, even if we're in toxic relationships or unhealthy relationships or confusion, even though we love the person, we have a hard time getting what we need. You know, being stuck with someone more than less is going to really illuminate our bonding dynamics mm. and how we navigate them. Yeah. Wow. Can't escape is easy. Yeah. Easy. <laughs> right. Not to mention just the fear of COVID or the actual impact of COVID on some people. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, leaving your house was always like a kind of a big contentious point for a lot of couples. Like, yeah. do you want to you expose us to <laughs> this? To danger, and, you yeah. know, and some people didn't feel, you know, it was so dangerous. And, and some everyone's relationship to the threatening impact of COVID, if the partners aren't aligned, it was an extra troublemaker and still is. I still, unfortunately, you know, have worked with that a lot, especially with the resurgences of danger where one will feel like, oh, I don't care if I get it or, oh, I got it or, oh, you're too worried. And the others, especially if they can get long hauler, they know someone who's had death or been highly compromised or they have their own health issues and they don't feel their partner is going to protect them. That partner actually doesn't lose his ally, you know, status and becomes in a sense a threatening enemy because you actually don't want to protect me. I could be in danger. We could be in danger. And you're minimizing that. Suddenly that person feels like an enemy to the sense of safety. So oh, COVID wow. can be a provocateur there, or it can bring people together if they align to protect each other and at least good enough alignment where they feel like you're caring for me. You want to offer me safety and security, even if we have different criteria, you know, you'll quarantine, you'll wear a mask, you'll whatever, if you've been exposed only because it will help me sleep at night and feel at home in our home. So do it for me. Okay, honey, I'm going to do it for myself. But if that makes you feel safer because I've been exposed or, you know, you need a certain amount of time once I've had it, I love you enough that I will wear a mask inside because that'll help you sleep at night. And I love you. I want to care for you versus, you know, you're too sensitive. You're ridiculous. I'm not going to do that. Get over yourself. That's more mm. narcissistic. Wow. Uh, fascinating, fascinating. I'm uh, taking so many notes. Uh, Carissa, are there any resources that you can point folks to in order to learn more about you, your work, your website? Sure. I have a website with my partner line called confusedaboutlove.com, confusedaboutlove.com. Within that, you can see we have several courses. We're about to post a new one in about two weeks, but one that's relevant for the codependency and narcissism. If you look under the courses, you'll see our codependency and narcissism. Also, a course, it's a 10-week course, um, and it's a you can take a whole lifetime or whatever, but it's <laughs> very generous. It's about... It's, uh, we started as an intro course and then people wanted more. So it could be bought in two parts and, or it's, uh, I think 197 for 10 weeks and 90 or 79 or 97 for the first three weeks, which are the basics. Um, you can go to the webpage, healingnarcissismcodependency.com. Make sure you, you, you can either find it through our website or just do that. Make sure you spell narcissism and, uh, no, healingcodependencynarcissism.com. And you can just listen to the free intro um, on the homepage and see how we define it. Never take the course. So, and then we have lots of blogs 
on our confusedaboutlove.com, someone narcissism. And um, I work online with people all over the world um, through Skype and Zoom and FaceTime. They really have to want to, you know, rewire to do that. And if people are interested, they can write me an email paragraph of what is going on. And I have to make sure it's in my wheelhouse and um, my practice is quite full, but I go through phases and see if I can Mm. support them and I kind of give them my policies and rates and all that and we, we explore if it's worth worth it or not to connect. amazing amazing oh Krista thank you so much for your time this is so wonderful I just really learned a lot from this conversation you're welcome so if they want to get a hold of me they can contact me at Krista confusedaboutlove.com c-a-r-i-s-t-a and um, just know you can heal and your partner can heal some of the best healthiest relationships are those that had a lot of trauma and want to use the relationship to heal each other, how to heal these anti-relational, non-relational reactions to being loving, pro-relational. And if partners want to heal each other, it can be quite remarkable. You don't mm -hmm. have to be afraid if you have a lot of confusion about love, whether you can learn to be loving. Oh, I love that. I love that so much. Amazing. Uh, so for our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learned about attachment styles, narcissism, codependency, and how to heal from that with Carissa Luminaire. And you can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one -on -one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. Thanks again.